Be to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We'll be finishing the chapter today, Lord willing, and moving on to chapter 4 next week. We'll be starting our reading at verse 12 this morning, Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. We'll actually read through chapter 4, verse 1, because I feel the first verse of the next chapter really belongs with this section. Uh, chapter divisions are not inspired. They were done by a monk. The Old Testament, they're a little questionable. In the New Testament, they're usually pretty good. But this is one place where I think it goes with the previous paragraph. Starting at verse 12 then. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the upward prize, or for the prize of Christ and the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, their glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. It's quite a uh, interesting passage. I- imitating people is often natural for us. Children imitate their parents. Uh, we wish they would do what they we say, not what we do. Uh, sometimes imitation can be bad, sometimes good. Uh, you may have noticed the fans of celebrities will often imitate the famous celebrities. I remember when I first got to Cambodia, some guy had grabbed my arm on the street and tried to drag me towards this building, pointing at a woman standing in front of it. Now, she was dressed probably more modestly than most women in churches in America. And he says, you want woman? Young? I'm like, ugh. Well, by the time I left, MTV had become a thing. And even in the church, girls were dressing after their idols on MTV. We tend to imitate the things we love, the te- things we respect. Uh, sometimes the heroes we respect and admire are good. Sometimes they're not so good. But in our passage today, Paul is calling us to imitate the right things, the right type. So before we look at that, let us ask the Lord to bless. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercies. We thank you, Lord, for your word and the encouragements in it and the instruction in it. We pray that as we look at the instruction today, 
the doctrine that you give us, that we would be careful to understand it and follow it and glorify you in it and see our lives lifted up and encouraged in it. And so Paul puts himself forward as a type to be imitated. Now, what is a type, you say? Well, we literally get that word typos from the Greek, and it was the block of type that the letter was on that they used in the printing press. The same word was used. And that's kind of the idea here. You have a standard, a fixed standard, a type that you want to use. And when it's used of people, like it's used of David as a type of Christ, meaning he has a representation of what Christ was to become. And if you read the Psalms, a number of times you'll find him start off talking about himself, and then he'll be talking about something far beyond what he did or what he endured. And we realize, reading the New Testament, that he's really talking about Jesus. The, the Holy Spirit moving in him shifts from him to Christ. And we think of him as then a type of Christ, a model of Christ. And that's what Paul is getting at here. We have a model of Christ in Paul as a faithful minister. And he says, join in imitating me. Now, he's not setting himself up as, you know, I'm, I'm the head of this party and we do things my way and everybody should follow me who's part of my sect. Because he condemns the sectarian ideas, particularly in his letter to Corinth. But in his ministry, we're not to follow men, we're to follow Christ. Uh, that's not what he's talking about. He's not saying that, you know, he, he's assuming dominion over the faith of men because he's their great leader and they should follow his teaching like he was a guru because, again, that's not what he advocates in Christ. He's not trying to lord it over God's people as their head, saying, do what I do. Now, what he desires is that they follow him as he follows Christ. And that's what he says in 1 Corinthians 11, the first verse. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So he is a representative the people could see imitating Christ who they could no longer see because he had ascended to heaven. Uh, he's not advocating himself as being the leader of a religion, but follow me as I follow Christ. In uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 and following, he says, you, you, know, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, meaning that as representatives of the Lord, they were showing them how they should live their lives according to the Bible, according to the teachings of Christ, and they were imitating both the Lord and them. He said, and because of that, you received the, joy, the, you received the word with much affection and joy of the Holy Spirit, and you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia. So they became someone to imitate an example for everyone else in the area because of their faithfulness. <coughs> it says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his Son from heaven. That's really what we're doing in this life. We're waiting for the Son of God to come back from heaven, uh, whom 
God raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. We are waiting on that deliverance, as he says in our passage today. Now, we saw that same heart the Thessalonians had in Philippians chapter 1, where they were in partnership with the gospel. They were, they were suffering with him in chains, even though he was in chains and they were not. But their unity with him, their love for him, their imitation of him, you know, their following of his example in Christ, was so close that he said, you're suffering with me. And he says to be careful, to, to keep our eyes on that kind of people. Watch them. Watch the way they walk as an example, a model for, for your life. Watch those who, like us, love the Lord, love his people, love his word, love the truth, and show their love by their obedience. As Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. You know, you follow the people whose example is keeping Christ's commandments. And keep your eyes on them, watch them. Or as the old version says, mark them, so that you can keep an eye on what they do and learn from them. Now, leaders in the New Testament are really called to be that kind of example. Uh, Paul tells Timothy, you know, after giving him some doctrine, he says, command and teach these things in chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And so he was to be the example which they would then naturally want to follow. Instead of following the MTV star or the um, professional wrestling star, those were the big ones in Cambodia, you know, follow those who follow Christ, who have shown the fruit of their salvation, who are living that holy life. Learn from them. That's of great importance. And the shepherds of the flock are the primary example for the people, the elders and the pastors. Peter talks about that in 1 Peter 5, 2-4. through 4. He says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, problem Paul's talking about in our passage today, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Note that, though, they are not to be domineering, but examples. Now, pastors and elders do not say, do what I say, not what I do, and bully people. But they say, you know, we live our life for God together. Follow me as I follow Christ. And they teach and they lead in that manner, not in the, not in the arrogance and the scorn and the, the abuse that we often see in the world. In, in this chapter, the example Paul is wanting them to follow most specifically has to do with the gospel. He's talking once again about those who have perverted the gospel, those mutilators of the flesh, he calls them. He wants them to follow the idea of salvation alone, by faith alone, or salvation by faith alone, by Christ alone, not putting confidence in the flesh. It's not who you are. It's not what you've done. It's not even what you're doing. Your righteousness comes through faith in Christ, through his completed work on the cross. As we talked about last week, 
you cannot look to Christ for 90% of your salvation like the circumcision group was. Now we know from uh, Acts chapter 15 that these people, some of them were believers, but they were going around teaching, unless you're circumcised and obey the law of Moses, you can't be saved. And what they were advocating then was, yes, we're believers, we have faith in Christ, but the cross isn't enough. We need to do something. We need to be circumcised. We need to obey the Old Testament law. Because our works will supplement what was lacking in Christ. But the cross, when Jesus says it is finished, it is finished. His work was completed on the cross. Salvation was made complete on the cross. He did not die for 99% of our sins. Because if he did, we can never do enough to die for that last percent. He could not die for 99.999% of our sins because we still couldn't die for that last part. We couldn't pay for it in any way except eternity in hell. And so Paul is very firm, even in this chapter, talking about these people, saying all they want to do is mutilate the flesh and that for shameful reasons, which we'll get into when we get there. Uh, his opponents in this chapter are really demonstrating an inadequate confidence in Christ, an inadequate amount of faith. I'm going to trust Jesus, but I'm going to do my own work too so that I'm sure. And Paul says, you know, that's not the way it works. It's either the cross or it's your works. Choose, believe, have faith. You know, salvation is in Christ alone. And when we are saved that way, when we have true saving faith, there's always a new person, a new creation, a new life. In Colossians 3, he tells them in verse 10, you know, you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and image of its creator. You know, we are renewing in that image of Christ that we are trying to achieve, and we find those who are showing that image of Christ, and we follow their examples of what is right. That's what he's calling us to do. Now, his opponent's character, we spent some time talking about it in verse 2 and 3, and their lack of faith. He says here, though, that in their life, the example they are giving people, the example they are walking, is that of enemies of the cross. Enemies. He tells us in Galatians 5, 2 through 6, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, then Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify to you again, every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You are severed from Christ who try to be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the spirit of faith, we ourselves eagerly await the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. That is the point he is stressing here as well. You know, these people are just mutilating the flesh. They are not helping you be saved. And if you follow them, you're following them to destruction, to damnation. 
because there is no hope without Christ. And if you are looking to any of your works at all, even a small amount, as we talked about last week, you're looking to something that pollutes your salvation. And you have been severed, he says, from Christ. Because this doctrine, salvation by faith alone and Christ alone, is so key to the Christian faith, Paul reminds them of this truth repeatedly. But in our day, we have really the same attitude, the same heart that they had in his day. If you look at Corinth in particular, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1 through 6, I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid as a servant deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a pure and sincere devotion to Christ. For if someone claims you another Jesus other than the one we proclaimed, or you receive a different spirit than the one you received, or you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not at least inferior to these super apostles, even if I am unskilled in speaking. I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Now, Paul has told them the truth. They have been saved by the truth. And now somebody else comes along and says, oh, but you need to add this to the truth. You need to add this to your salvation. You need to believe this or do this beyond what the Bible says. Turning aside to works as a partial solution to the problem is the biggest problem he had. And he says, but you accept it readily. And we do in this day. And we have the evangelical movement. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe about Jesus. I remember I was interviewing somebody to work with me in the countryside and translate. And I asked him a minor theological question. He said, oh, we don't need that at all. All we need is the love of Jesus. I'm like, thank you very much. Enjoy your meal. (laughs) All done. Uh, Didn't get the job. But that's the spirit of our day, the spirit of acceptance. We don't need to worry like Paul does about the details. We don't need to worry about the doctrine of salvation. But he does. And he is not speaking just as himself, as some sort of guru. He is speaking as an apostle. He is speaking as the Holy Spirit has moved him along. His words in this book are the words God wanted said to us. It's like God himself is speaking to us. We need to really understand and pay attention to that fact that we need to be as precise as God is. We don't go beyond what he says. We don't eliminate what he says. We don't depart to the right or the left. We don't add or take away. We do what he says. We believe what he says. He says, I've told you about these people with tears. Why tears? Well, some of them are believers. As I mentioned in Acts 15, verse 5, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Some of the people doing this teaching were believers but they had left the, left the path. They had wandered off into darkness, into foolishness. They had lost sight of the work of Christ on the cross. It is finished. It is sufficient. 
It is everything we need. But they were losing sight of this and wandering away and leading people astray and confusing people. And with tears, he warns them about this over and over again. They are enemies of the cross. He loves them. He desires for their salvation, desires their faithfulness. And it brings him to tears for their souls, for fear. Now, he is not on a rampage of destruction against them. Yes, if they insist on teaching and insist on deceiving people, he goes so far as we read in Galatians to pronounce an anathema upon them. But he cares for their souls and he tries to persuade them and tries to teach them and tries to encourage them to follow the right example, to put their hope, their faith, their trust in Christ alone, not in themselves, not in the Old Testament law, which was just a guide to show them their need for Christ. Now, understand that about the Old Testament law. The people were to you know, offer a sacrifice for their sins, but how could my sin be paid for by a goat or by a sheep? Those who had faith understood that didn't do it. I'm trusting in some other sacrifice, not myself, not my goat, not my sheep, not my bull, not my ram, not whatever I have. But I'm Christ, trusting in the sheep that God will provide, the Lamb of God, the Christ to come. And they understood that, those who had faith. But those who didn't thought, oh, by doing this, I can counter all my sins. I can you know, adjust the balance and come out a little better than I am worse and I'll be saved. And that's what the Pharisees' whole model of salvation was based on. They didn't understand that they could never pay for their sin themselves. And if you can't pay for your sin yourself, then you need to trust wholly in somebody else to pay it. You don't say, oh, you pay $10 million and I've got five in my pocket, I'll pay that much and we're good. No. It's either all or nothing, according to Paul in his teaching. It's hard, though, to think about these examples and to follow them. So he gives us a little more encouragement by reminding us of the path and its end, especially its end. They do this to their destruction, he says. For these enemies of the cross, there is only destruction awaiting. They're leading people astray from Christ. They're leading them away from the example that Paul has given. They're leading them away from the Holy Scriptures, what God himself has said. And in those cases, he is quite harsh on them. I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. Galatians 1, chapters 1, verse 6 and following. But there are some who trouble you and distort the gospel of Christ. And that's where he says, but even if an a we or an angel from heaven should preach to a different gospel, contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. I've said before, let me say it again. If anyone is preaching you the gospel, contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. There is only one gospel out there. The others are not a gospel. Just as there is only one God out there, the others are not God. There is only one way to God. 
and that is through Christ. The others are not ways. It's popular today to accept that you can get there through any religion, that they all lead to heaven, but they don't. If Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, then no one gets there another way. And we need to submit to that and remember that and check our own hearts that we are not looking for a side entrance. We're not looking to climb over the fence into the, into the sheep pen, but that we are looking to go through Christ. He says, these people who are teaching these other things, who are leading them away, are leading them to destruction and that they are condemned. And we talked about this last week. What's the difference between the one doing the duping and the one who's been duped? You know, the, the one who's teaching deceitful doctrine and the one who's following it because they're confused. How do we treat the one who's essentially a babe in Christ, not mature as last week's text covered? How do we de- deal with the child who's obstinate? I can do it. And they won't listen to reason. How do you deal with the teenager who knows everything and won't listen? Well, he gives us that, uh, that information. He says, in time, God will show you. If you don't understand these things, you don't believe them. He says in, to Titus in chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, there are many who are insubordinate and empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. He goes on in chapter 3, 9, and 11, 9 through 11 to say, you know, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. For the person who stirs up division after warning them once, after warning them twice, have nothing more to do with them, knowing that such a person is warped, sinful, self-condemned. We already read the anathema on those who are teaching a false gospel. What is the difference? Where is the line drawn? Well, he promises that God will open their eyes in time of the believer who's lost, who's confused, who's been tricked. What do we do with them in the meantime? Romans 14.1, speaking of the meat sacrifice to idols controversy, says, as to the one who is weak in faith, welcome him and do not quarrel over opinions. Yes, he goes on to condemn as foolishness what they believe, tells them they're wrong, tells them they have no right to judge the Christian who has faith, who has maturity, who has knowledge and understanding. But he says, welcome them, even though they're wrong. Chapter 15, verse 1 through 3 says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his, for his own good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. You know, Christ, in his example, he is not dying for those who are perfect. He is dying for the wicked, the wretched, the enemies, the dead in sin. And he's calling on us also to bear with them. If they try to teach, silence them. If they're going from house to house, if they're calling people over to their house and teaching them wrong doctrine, you must silence them, stop them. 
But if they're not, even if they won't understand, even if they're being obstinate like a teenager, even if they're being clueless like a child, he says, welcome them, bear with them. He does say, I urge your brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 We have that obligation to help those follow the right path. And if you put a weak, ignorant Christian out of the church, what path are they going to follow? What example do they have? Not God's people. Not a godly pastor. They'll have to go somewhere else. And so... Patience and long-suffering is needed as long as we're protecting the truth. This is not a contradiction between these two sections, two ideas, rebuking, silencing, excommunicating versus bearing with and being patient. It's really all about the teaching. We, We read last week in Luke 17, 1 and 2, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. If the temptation to fall away in doctrine, to believe heresy is coming from someone, they're the ones whom woe will be upon. Yes, we will suffer for following them, but they will be condemned. Peter says in Second Peter 2, verse 1, false prophets, just as false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you that will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. He's probably talking about exactly the same doctrine that Paul is fighting against, denying the master who bought them. Christ alone is not enough. I need my works. I need my circumcision. I need my obedience to the law. I need to follow this rule or that rule. I need my good works to curry favor with God to earn my salvation. I think he's talking about exactly the same problem the same group. The one who's teaching error, even in secret, must be stopped because they're wolves. But the one who is confused, who doesn't understand, must be loved and patiently instructed and led like sheep, led to water, led to green pastures. Though to those who are teaching, he says, their God is their belly. Now some were doing this for money, not for service to God, as Peter was saying, but also their their observation of the law, their zeal for the law was not zeal for the law, but an effort to avoid the persecution Paul faced. Almost all the persecution he got, well, vast majority of it really, was over the Jews objecting to him saying, Christ is the fulfillment of the law. You don't need that anymore. There was persecution also from the pagans who were upset about their idols being blasphemed. But most of the trouble he had, including the trouble that got him in jail when he wrote this letter, was from the Jews. The Jews were burning with a fierce wrath against Paul because of that doctrine. And to avoid that, Men may have been out there teaching, well, you need to be circumcised too so that the Jews won't complain. They might not put it that way, but that's the implication here. Their God is their belly. They want to earn their money. They want to be safe. They want to be comfortable. They want to be happy. 
And so for their own ease, for their own advantage, they include the requirements of Judaism on top of Christianity. And if you look around the world, that kind of syncretism is common. You can enjoy and avoid the persecution of the local religion by allowing their religion and your religion to kind of merge. Uh, We were talking about that last week concerning a lot of the holidays we celebrate in America. I don't mind celebrating them as as just cultural holidays, but if you look at their history, they were pagan celebrations, and when the Catholic Church came along, they kind of said, you can keep doing that, but change a few of the names. Mary becomes your goddess, Jesus your God. Uh, Your celebration of whatever can be fixed. We'll just add it in. And they avoid the persecution that comes from the cross and the exclusivity that Christ calls for. And he says, in this way, they are glorying in their shame. Let me ask you, where does a dictionary get the definition of a word? And why, if you look in my dictionary from, what is it, the 1800s, and compare that to the way the word is used today, they're very different. Well, it's because they take a poll, essentially. How is the word being used? And that's the meaning. And as the usage changes over time, the meaning in the dictionary gets updated every few years. That's fine for words because we need to know how they're used and it's good to be able to find an old dictionary so you know when somebody, you read in an ancient book somewhere that the Holy Spirit preventeth salvation, you know that preventeth used to mean pre-event and the Holy Spirit comes before salvation would be the translation in English, modern English. Yeah, you need the old dictionaries. But for Christianity, does it change? Should the definition of what is right and wrong change with time? Most of the church today says, yes, we need to evolve with the times. We need to adapt to the current society. We need to understand the real thinking of today and show how the Bible can support that and agree with that and be acceptable to that and avoid the persecution that comes from insisting that something written 3,500 years ago is still valid. I remember an old joke. There was a woman taking a survey in a mall, and she called three people over, a housewife, an accountant, and a lawyer. And they had a few warm-up questions, you know. What's two plus two? The housewife says four. The bookkeeper pulls out, accountant pulls out his calculator and says, hold on, let me plug it into my spreadsheet. And the lawyer says, what do you want it to be? Now, we have a lot of lawyers with scripture today. What do you want it to mean? What do you want it to be? What truth is going to be your truth today? Because under postmodernism, truth is relative. It's whatever you want. You can have your truth, I can have my truth. As long as we don't you know, interfere with each other, we can both be happy. If you say truth is absolute, well, you're an enemy. But in scripture, truth is absolute. They glory in the things society found acceptable. Amongst the Jews, being circumcised was needed. Therefore, they gloried in circumcision, even though Paul is saying, but if you're circumcised, you're cut off from Christ. So they were glorying in their shame. It was a shame that they were cutting themselves off from Christ. And that was what they gloried in. What a terrible thing. Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The God who 
inspired the writings from even 3,500 years ago, knew what was going to happen today. He knows everything that's going to happen right up until the day he returns. And he's going to know what happens after that. He already knows everything before he started. He doesn't need to adapt the Bible with time because the real truth, the real righteousness, the real holiness is unchanging. The timeless truths of the Bible are what we need desperately in our generation. He contrasts them with us, though. Their end is destruction. Our end is God. He says our citizenship is in heaven. We were made citizens by God. In Colossians 1, 13 and 14, he says he, referring to God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God took us and made us citizens of his country now. That is where we are going. We are his citizens. And we are warned then, therefore, to have our heart, our mind set upon the things of heaven. Paul tells us, as we've been raised with Christ, we are to seek the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set our mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. Just as Jesus told us to store up our treasures in heaven in Matthew 6. He says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in to steal. But lay up treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be. And our heart should be on our kingdom of heaven, not in this horrible land we are sojourning in for a brief time, but our eternal home where we where we are waiting for our Savior to come from. Now that is the teaching here and elsewhere. Right now, Christ has ascended to heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father, waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. And he's there making intercession, we're told in Hebrews 7.25, day and night for his people. We don't need to worry because he is the one who stands between us and the wrath of God. And says, no, I have paid for it. He is there. And we look to him with that great expectation that the way he went up, he'll come back. And if we are alive when that happens, we, we will see him with our eyes. And if we are dead, we will be raised from the dead and we will join him in the air. What a glorious, glorious hope for our lives, for our future. That is not the hope they have, though. They have only the fear of dreadful wrath and ruin and damnation and suffering. And so we have to be careful what path we follow, what example we take, and we lead, or lead ourselves along the ways that lead to heaven by following those who are clearly going there, who are obedient to God. And he, he goes on here to say, and I think we're short enough on time, I'll just read a couple of verses about our resurrection, you know, our hope. I remember my pastor telling me before I went to seminary about an elderly couple. They were in their late 80s, and they were very worried that they were going to die before the rapture came. And I looked at him and said, well, what difference does it make? They were pre-trib rapture, so they thought, you know, it would be safe. 
If you're post-trib rapture, you've got to go through the whole tribulation before the rapture, and you might not want to go that way. You might hope he returns after you die. But they wanted his return because they didn't have confidence. If my body dies, I have no body. Now, Paul is saying, we will have a glorious body like his, a heavenly body. And 1 Corinthians 15, you can read verse 35 through 49 if you want. But right now we'll just look at a couple of verses. Verse 40 says, Just as there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, the glory of the earthly is of another kind. And what is sown is a natural body, but what will be raised is a spiritual body. And even if we are alive when Christ comes and we go to meet him in the air, we will be transformed into that spiritual body. And that is our hope. This wretched body that we have that's broken down and ruined and falling apart, and needs drugs to get by every day, is going to be replaced by a glorious body. No more pain medications. No more Parkinson's medications. We will be perfect in Christ. And that is the encouragement he's giving us here. He's saying, you know, follow my example because that is my destination. And we get there together. Follow that as I follow Christ. And so in chapter 4, verse 1, he's telling them to stand firm. He once again says, My brothers whom I love and long for. You know, he expresses that, that heart for his people back in the first chapter. His love for them, his desire to see them grow. And if you had a good parent, or even just one parent who was exceptionally good, They wanted to see you grow. They wanted to see you encouraged. They wanted to see you making right decisions and leading a righteous life before God. And he's like a parent to them. But he's also their shepherd. And as a shepherd, he wants to see them walk closer to Christ. He wants to see them more godly. He wants to see their transformation into the image of Christ more complete and more complete. And that is his joy, he says to see that happen in them. And we have a great shepherd who has modeled that joy, that, that transformation for us perfectly. And we're to follow him and we're to follow a man like Paul as he's following Christ so that we can see what it looks like. And we can't see Jesus except in the Gospels. We can't see Paul anymore except in the Scriptures. But what we see, that example of their lives, their sacrifice, their willingness to suffer for God's people and for God's service, all of those things are what he's calling us here to example. And he calls us, calls these people his beloved. Now, what a wonderful thing to have a man who cares for their souls so much. He goes on to call them his joy and his crown. He knows that the day of judgment will come. He knows that God will examine all of his works and test all of his works and try all of his works. And he sees these people and the work he's done above among them as not just a joy, but his crown, his glory. As God tests them, he will see that Paul was faithful. That's his hope. That's his, his goal, his purpose. And he will see these people leading transformed lives. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 15, that each one's work will become manifest, 
for the day, the day of judgment, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and by fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work anyone has built on survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved as though through fire. And for the believer, there's no chance of our soul being lost if we are truly longing to Christ. But we may get to heaven without any treasures or any clothes or anything. And so Paul's encouragement here is by living the right life, by storing that treasure for ourselves in heaven, by following the example of those who are doing that, we can do a better and better job at it. And we can look forward to that reward that is coming, that crown from Christ. And so he tells us to stand firm. He said the same thing earlier in the chapter when he's talking about maturity. Hold fast to what we've already attained. As we strive forward to attain more, hold fast to our faith, the truth, the things we know. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 16 to be, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. You know, it does always come back to that. Love, not as the world loves, but love as God loves. Love for his holiness, his justice, his goodness, his truth, his word. Love for all the things that he has called us to be and all the things that he has called us to do. Run the good race. Fight the good fight. Stand firm until the very end, no matter the price. We are to imitate Christ. And he has given us not only his example, but the example of other men, like Paul, like Peter, even though they were not perfect. Even though they had struggles, we see the life they were living, the goal they had in mind, that they could lay aside all the things of this world and say they are but rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. So they stood firm in their faith, no matter the trials no matter the cost. And we should do likewise. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this wonderful passage that encourages us to imitate your saints as we imitate your Son and as they imitate your Son and walk according to that example. And we pray for our own walk, Lord, as we struggle sometimes to walk the way we should, to do the things we should. We ask for your grace, for your mercy, for the wisdom and diligence to pursue it in your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.